Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The title of this talk is The Lion's Roar. We have um, very little control, or perhaps you could say no control, it seems, over our experience. Have you, have you noticed that? <laughs> you come into the hall and you say, I'm going to really do it now. I'm going to really have a mindful sit. I slept well. Not too much on my mind. This is going to be it. And you're just on Pluto for the duration until the bell rings and you say, what happened there? (laughs) Or you go into the hall and say, "Uh uh-oh, I think this is going to be a hard one. My mind's all over the map. There's stuff I know that's just lurking underneath, waiting to grab me. And lo and behold, you have a clear sitting. Has that ever happened? Yeah. It's so amazing, isn't it? You can have all the plans in the world, and you don't know until you get on the cushion just what it's going to be like. Actually, while I think about it, that's as I practice when I go into the hall, I I usually say to myself, oh, I wonder what this one's going to be like. Um, Because I've seen, I've got no idea. So practice is a continual surprise. And it's not any different from life, which is a continual surprise. Everything seems fine, and then all of a sudden, an earthquake hits, and tens of thousands die, or a tsunami, or somebody here on on staff mm, uh, over the summer, I think it was, it was about six or seven or eight months ago, uh, was driving as a passenger in, in a car with another person on staff, and, uh, and as the car made a turn, this truck slammed into them, and he was in the hospital for the next three months with six cracked crack ribs and punctured lung, and uh, it was like, whoa, uh, where did that happen? He's, he's doing fine now. It was amazing. He's doing great now. I, I, it was so great to see him the other day. But... As he was saying, you just never know, which is the truism of life. The same way it can go on the other side, you know, just you're down there in the pits and just thinking, wow, you know, this is a really hard period. And you meet the love of your life in the middle of it. Or 
you go through some really hard stuff and miracles happen and open up to opportunities that you didn't know were waiting for you. As um, Joseph Goldstein says, one of my favorite lines, anything can happen at any time. Anything can happen at any time. Or Stephen Levine, as he says, fortunes change quicker than a swish of a horse's tail. So in this unstable, unpredictable situation, it can be really unsettling because we want some kind of assurance. We want some kind of safety. We want some kind of stability, security, refuge, if you will, in a world of change. And because it's continually changing, the unknown, the next moment, by definition, it's unknown, is unpredictable. And yet we do whatever we can to try desperately to either sort out, figure out how things will be, what can I do to, to kind of make it, make it a smooth ride. And we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out the next moment. And in the process, of course, if it's the habit, uh, that's a lifetime of figuring out the next moment and missing the one that's right here. So many of us live in vigilance and kind of um, anxiety, low-level anxiety, what's going to be happening next? And we're actually wired up that way as well, as my neuroscience friend uh, Rick, Rick Hansen uh, has has taught me, you know, we have, we have our brain scanning for what could go wrong. That's what's kept us alive. And this little almond-shaped cluster of neurons in the, in the center of it, the amygdala, is looking out for the next thing that could go wrong. So this is a good thing. I mean, it keeps us, it's kept us alive. You know. It's a good thing up to a point but uh, it doesn't know when to stop and just kind of turn off for many of us. So we, we live often in wondering about the future, worrying about the future, having fear about what's coming down the pike, and that's the main thing that makes it hard to relax and just be here and wake up. Last night, Howie gave the talk on the hindrances and uh, in the talk, you know, it, it, whenever I hear a hindrance talk, it's always kind of um, intrigued me that somehow fear didn't make it onto the list. But really, fear is at the heart of all the hindrances. In some way, you know, when you're filled with wanting, it's like, this isn't enough. Life isn't enough right now. And I won't have enough. Or I need that. If I don't get that, I'm not going to be happy. Or aversion 
there is something dangerous around, or I don't like that, and I'm not going to be happy until I get rid of it, or disappointment in somebody, and you're getting really angry because um, you don't have control over the circumstances, or laziness and sloth and torpor. You just, it keeps us from acting wholeheartedly. You ever get that feeling? What if I really put in my time and just really gave it a wholehearted, sincere, sincere effort, and it didn't, it didn't go well. So we kind of, you know, play it a little bit safe. Restlessness and worry, you know, which is right there in, the, in that hindrance. Worry and toppling forward about the future. My, my mom is a big worrier, really big. It's part of her lineage and my lineage too. She says, if she doesn't have something to worry about, then she really gets worried. (laughs) And of course, then there's the the doubt, the doubting mind, that the fear that I'm not good enough or life isn't going to work out and it's going to be dangerous or disappointing. So, uh, the, the problem with fear or worry is that it's a futile, futile attempt to control with our minds. You know, just if I ward off, if I think about what could go wrong, we just get caught. Not that we want to, but keep on thinking about what could go wrong. It's like it's some way to manufacture some imagined security, kind of playing out the worst-case scenario. But what it does is it fills our mind with a negative reality, and it cuts off all wholesome states. And it keeps us facing in the wrong direction. It's like a a self-fulfilling prophecy, it seems, at times. Uh, When I was... When I was young, I had this experience. I haven't thought about this in years, but just a few months ago I thought about it, and I've been using it a a lot in in talks. When I was about mm, seven or so, I forget exactly the age, maybe six or seven, I was um, uh, learning to ride a bicycle. And my father was was teaching me. uh, And this one Sunday morning in our block in Elmhurst, Queens. There we were, and it was empty. The block was just, you know, there's nobody in near sight. And you know that, remember when you're, you're being taught to ride a bike, you know, the, you, the, the adult is there and holding on and holding on, and, and then that magic moment when you're doing it without the training wheels, right? Okay, here you go. And so there was that moment and it was like kind of like whoa okay this is it but I thought maybe I could do it and here you go and going down my block nobody anywhere in sight for a while but as I kept on going down the block and the thing is I didn't really get about how to stop the bike I just (laughs) I just knew how to balance it for a little while but I didn't know how to brake. That was a, a very important detail that I somehow didn't get. So there down in front of me, way in the distance, 
is um, a whole group of people um, on Sunday morning, and there is this um, man with a baby carriage. And I see it getting closer and closer. I'm saying, oh, God, don't hit the baby carriage. Don't hit the baby carriage. Don't hit the baby carriage. And it was like I was steering. My radar was going right into the baby carriage, which I hit. (laughs) And was traumatized for the next three years. I didn't ride a bike. But it was... It was so, as I remembered it, I I recall this moment, it was like there, it was the only thing in my reality was that baby carriage. I couldn't even see anything else on the planet, just that baby carriage. Where else could I have gone? And that's what we do with fear and worry. That's what we align ourselves with, and that fills our reality. So... Whether we worry or not, uh, things are going to happen, but that worry keeps us disconnected from the truth. And it often leads to more negativity, as I say, because we're fighting with life, we can't see things clearly, and we're off balance, and we're not in the flow of things. And also in that contraction, we can't see other options because we're focusing on what could go wrong. This is um, from uh, Emotional Intelligence by uh, Danny Goleman. The problem with worry. New solutions and fresh ways of seeing a problem do not typically come from worrying, especially chronic worry. Instead of coming up with solutions to these potential problems, worriers typically simply ruminate on the danger itself, immersing themselves in a low-key way in the dread associated with it while staying in the same rut of thought. So there's, there's not the space to see other possibilities. And as we worry, we, we often, like my mom, she kind of feels that it's uh, you're not putting in your time. That's what she used to say. You're not putting in your time if you're not worrying. And it, it reminds me of the... Uh, she says it with, with humor because she knows that it's, this is not so healthy. And she's actually gotten better in uh, recent times. But she still worries a lot. And it reminds me of the Nasruddin story, Mullah Nasruddin story, where he's, he's spreading... Um, crumbs around the perimeter of his house. Mullah Nasruddin, this eccentric, wise man, fool, and um, all kinds of Sufi teaching stories. And he's spreading them so meticulously around the house. And, uh, and his students say, um, Mullah, why are you spreading those crumbs around the house? And he says, oh, I'm doing it to keep away the tigers. And one of the students says, tigers? There, there aren't tigers for hundreds of miles from here. And he says, effective, isn't it? (laughs) And that's kind of what we do with worry. You know, we just kind of, okay, it's out there. I kind of, I'm warding it off, except that that's filling our reality. So um, it's not so useful. 
in a world of impermanence, things happen. On an external level, circumstances happen. Our physical health can change in a moment. Other people are unpredictable. And we're subject to what in the teachings are called the eight worldly conditions, the, the vicissitudes of pleasure, pain, loss, gain, fame, shame, praise, blame. And we do our darndest to try to find some refuge of safety, but we are bound to be experiencing these throughout our life. There's no stability there. That's on the external level. And on the internal level of change, the mind is changing so quickly, all the time. All the moods, all the, how many, how many moods have you had today? And each one seems so real, unless you had enough mindfulness to say, oh, kind of sad right now, or oh, freaking out right now, that's what's going on. But mostly, we get caught in it, and we're lost in the mood, not realizing that we had a different one two hours ago, and we'll have a different one two hours from now. How many thoughts have you had today? Thousands and thousands and thousands of thoughts. And each one can seem so real when we're in the middle of it. But it's continually changing. And it doesn't matter how clear you are. One of my favorite Hindu lines, this line that says, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. Even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. It's just one thought away believing what comes through your mind. Not good enough. Not going to work. What a loser. I blew it. One moment, that becomes your reality. Or you can be going through a really hard day and somebody just smiles at you and you pick it up, and in a moment, the whole cloud vanishes. Oh, wow, life is not so bad after all. So, it's like a roller coaster ride here. That, that's, that's, it's like a sine curve, you know, it's constantly going up and down and up and down. So how can we find any safety? How can we feel security in that? We talk about refuge, but where is the refuge in this world of continual change? Any holding on in a world of change is dukkha. That's the second noble truth, isn't it? Joseph, again, has a a great image talking about how we create dukkha by holding on. He likens it to rope burn. You know, as you're trying to hold on, sliding down a rope. You know, it's, it hurts, right? <clears throat> you don't want to let go if you're 20 feet up, but 
if you hold on tightly instead of a little bit at a time, uh, you're going to be suffering. So, how do you find refuge in this? So, the Buddha in his wisdom realized that not only should we accept reality, accept the reality that everything changes and resign ourselves to it, but actually we should reflect on these facts every day to really see what's going on, really see the story, the five reflections that I'm sure most of you know. This body will become old. It will age. It will become sick. It will die. Everything near and dear to me I will be separated from and I am the owner of my actions, my karma. He says, think about this every day. Not to depress yourself, but to see the truth so you're not afraid to look at it and that you can deal with it in a wiser way. And somehow find a refuge in the middle of it. Fear, when we get caught up in fear, we're afraid of being um, shocked. Our system needs, uh, needs some kind of um, protection from a big jolt. Like when you uh, prepare a patient for an operation and you explain, well, this and this and this is going to happen, then there's that information that helps put somebody at ease. Can, anyway. Or if we have some transition time, so it's not just a, a herky-jerky new situation. When there, it is, it's, it fills us and we're, we're kind of reverberating. So when we really look at and get, embodying get, that things can change at any moment as we reflect again and again. And as you're practicing here again and again, you're seeing it's not just an idea, oh, things change. It's really seeing it. Then there's a transformative experience because we're not shocked. And it's more possible to be with the flow of the change in Zen-style uh, practice, often they don't ring a, a sweet bell. They end the sitting with clackers, like that. There you are, nice and quiet and still, and like that. So you don't hold on to that sweetness, and you're ready at any time to let go. It's one thing to kind of understand conceptually that things change. It's a whole other to really understand within your being that things change. And those insights kind of come from behind. They kind of creep up on you. I, I tell this story, probably a number of have heard, where I first got the insight about change, 
was on my second retreat, and I was just really having a hard time. Everything around just wasn't working, and everybody around was a phony, and everything that everybody was saying just seemed weird to me. And I had this huge wave of doubt, and I, I couldn't sit, I couldn't walk. I finally just went up to my, my room and uh, my little cubicle in the, in the meditation center, and uh, there was a picture of uh, Neem Karoli Baba, who's always been an inspiration for me, smiling at me and saying, hmm, getting a little freaked out, aren't we? You know? And his smile just kind of broke the spell, and I saw I had just been completely gone in this wave of doubt, and the doubt just disappeared. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to tell Joseph that I'd conquered doubt. <laughs> However, uh, the interview was quite a few hours away, and between that exhilaration, going from doubt to confidence, I went through every possible mind state. I was exhilarated, then I crashed, then I got confused, and then I was kind of sleepy, and then I woke up, and then I, I went into the interview, and he said, so how's it going? <laughs> and I sighed, utterly exasperated and innocent. It's always changing. He said, that's it. You got it. I said, oh, yeah, you keep on saying that, don't you? Yeah. Oh, I think I'm getting it. It really is always changing. So if you find yourself going through 30 different cycles in a day, instead of feeling frustrated by it, understand that you are getting a firsthand visceral, direct experience of Anicca. Everything is changing. How wonderful. And as you see that, then you can start to appreciate what Alan Watts calls the wisdom of insecurity. If you're looking for security in a world of change, you're setting yourself up for problems. But the wisdom of insecurity, seeing there is no security. That sounds kind of scary, but that's where the freedom lies. If our suffering is caused by holding on and trying to control what's out of our control, then, as the Buddha said, freedom comes from letting go of the control that we never had in the first place. But it's easier said than done. You just think, oh, okay, well, I'm holding on. I'll just kind of let go of how things are and how things should be. You, you might get it here, but getting it from the inside takes some practice and, and time. Especially when things are going really good. You know. It's a little bit harder to let go, isn't it? On my first retreat, my very first retreat, uh, this is in Great Barrington in 1974, uh, I had this one Incredible sit. It was the first time I sat where it didn't matter if the bell rang. In fact, 
it was the first time I can remember I didn't want the bell to ring. Because there I was, I was breathing in, the universe was breathing out. I was breathing out, the universe was breathing in. We were just doing such a nice dance together. You know. And I was, it was clear, it was light, I was spacious, it was fabulous. The sitting ended, and the next time I went to sit, I couldn't wait to get back there again. <laughs> and I had, over the course of the next two days, a hell of a time keeping on trying to get back to where I was. And I went into an interview with Joseph, and I said, I had it, I lost it. How do I get it back? And he told me this story that I was, I've been so grateful he told me on this, this first retreat. He told me about a time, and he writes about this in uh, Insight Meditation, I think he where he was uh, in his own practice in uh, India for a while, where he was in this space over the course of weeks and months where his body was filled with light and his mind was so clear. And then he went back to, uh, to the States for a couple of months and uh, knowing he was going to go back to practice. And when he was in the States, he, did, he didn't practice a whole lot and uh, you know, just kind of got, got out of out of that yogi mode, went back to India, remembering really well what things were like. And he said he sat down and hoping, expecting to be going back to the light and clarity. And his, his mind was like mud, he said, and his body was like twisted steel. Okay, and then he leaned forward and he said, he said I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. I was the dummy. This is, this is his words. I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but we can forget so easily. On one retreat, I... Uh, uh, it was a, a, on a, a fall retreat. I kept on going through this yo-yo experience and uh, where it seemed to be happening and then it wasn't happening and then it, seemed, and then it was happening again. And, and I finally wrote this little note to myself. If the thought... What did I say first? If the thought, it's happening, comes, watch out. <laughs> And then underneath, if the thought, nothing's happening, comes, watch out. It was, it was very good. <laughs> I liked that one a lot. You might just put a little note <laughs> on your, near your bed. This is all about letting go of it all. Because in the letting go is where we see the truth where we see the possibility of freedom. And I'll read to you one of my... I'm going to read a, let's see, a few, uh, if I can fit them in, a few Dana Falls poems. 
Uh, This is one of my favorite. Let it go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let it go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanation that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So as we can let go and we see directly the reality of things and we're humbled again and again that this is really fabulous. To be humbled, if you can process it wisely, leads to true humility where you see you don't really have control. What a relief to realize it's not up to you to fix the world and make your life perfectly, which is just a setup for a pass-fail test. Being humbled leads to humility. And being engulfed in fear can lead to fearlessness if we know how to work with it. This is, this is the lion's roar, which is the, in Tibetan practice, the fearless proclamation that everything is workable. The lion's roar, the fearless proclamation, everything is workable. So how does this mysterious transformation happen? How can we open up to the worst and see possibilities where we aren't afraid? I'll read an inspiring passage. Um, This is Awakening Joy, by the way. A new book I highly recommend. Life was going, on, going well on all fronts for my friend Abaya. She was teaching meditation, had completed a two-year training to get certified as a chaplain, and was working at a hospital with people facing life-threatening illnesses. Doing what she loved to do was greatly fulfilling. The last time I'd heard from her, she said she was very happy. Then one day, I received an unexpected email from her, sent out to all her friends. I've had an interesting week and have some news to share. A physical therapy appointment led to an ER visit, which led to a CAT scan, which a few days later led to an MRI, 
which yesterday brought me to a neurosurgeon who showed me the results which reveal a rather large tumor in my brain. No matter how I say it, it sounds so dramatic. The neurosurgeon believes he can remove most of the tumor, but not all of it. He will not know the full ramifications until he knows what kind of tumor it is, which he will not know until he's in there. And she ended her email. My heart is very full today with all the love I'm receiving. Know that I send this with love and gratefulness for all you do, for, to all of you. Please be happy and feel some of the wonder of life. I do. She's actually doing fine. She was going to be coming here uh, on this retreat, but just uh, at the last minute, uh, it it didn't work out. How does that happen where you can have that fright and still feel gratitude and still feel that life hasn't been unfair to you? where you can still open up and say, okay, here's my next practice. What you're doing here is exactly the way to develop that capacity. Because as you see for yourself that everything changes, it's freeing, it's liberating, and it keeps on unfolding. Every relationship, every experience, everything that we've gone through is part of what helps us grow and wake up. There's no mistakes if we know how to use our experience wisely. We don't think we'll be able to live without this person or this situation and everything near and dear to us will be separated. And we do live. When my, when my dad died, who is really the, a very key person in my life, he died in 1984. And I just, I couldn't imagine for a while what it would be like with, without him, but he just became part of me. It's not like, oh, I'm not, I can't go on living. They become part of you. Everybody in your life is part of you. All the experiences, all the losses, all the, all the hard stuff, that's how we grow. Our best friends, think of how many best friends you've had in your life. If you're, you might not, let's see, how many people are still best friends with their best friend in uh, in uh, elementary school. There might be a few. There's one, two, three, four. Okay. But the rest of us, we've had a bunch of best friends since then. And each one, we say, oh no, I could never live without my best friend. Think of how many best friends have come and gone. I remember on on one retreat, one uh, three-month course, where I'd feel, you feel the connection with somebody and all of a sudden their Zafu disappears. And I was like, how could they go? We didn't get to say goodbye. But, and it's all in silence, right? It was, it was such a great teaching, just, oh yeah, 
and you bear it, you feel the loss, and then life goes on. All the sadnesses, all the relationships that were so wonderful and beautiful and that have taken a turn, nothing's lost in there. Just honoring everyone as your benefactor. This is a really powerful lesson that we're learning here. It's not that life shouldn't, should always go right. It's that we can learn what the real deal is here. This is Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. So the hard stuff, this is the first truth. This is what the Buddha was talking about. And if you try to hold on to how things were, it gets really painful. But if you see, oh, you're in the middle of a journey, then uh, our suffering becomes grace. This is from an anecdote about Ramdas. When, when Ramdas, um, as probably most of you know, uh, is this brilliant gift of gab, uh, whose main inspiration for me and for so many people, and when he had his stroke in 1996, I think it was, or 97, and all of a sudden he, he couldn't uh, communicate uh, and he speak very, very haltingly. Now he's, he's do- I saw him this year and he's doing, he's doing really good. But uh, it was really hard for a while. And we had a day long here at Spirit Rock, um, just honoring him and celebrating him. And he gave, a, um, he gave a talk. He tried to give a talk. And it was, it took a while before he got the words out. And after the talk, I went over to him, and uh, he was really sad. Right? And he just said, I can't do this anymore. As the, the words came slowly out, it's just never going to be the same. And I was, it was really moved because here's my, one of my main benefactors, and he was really, he was really in that moment sad. And uh, then he processed all his sorrow and his suffering over time, and he became more inspiring than ever. He's amazing. Now when he gives a talk and there's silence, it's, oh, this is time for everybody to meditate. And what he came to, and he writes about this in his, in his book, uh, Still Here, as the f- uh, long sequel after Be Here Now, he's still here. He says, I used to say I'm a golfer and a sports car driver, but now I'm someone telling that story. I can't golf or drive anymore. If I cling to that identity, I suffer. The stroke was like a samurai sword cutting apart the two halves of my life. It was a demarcation between two stages. Before I had the stroke, I was full of fears about aging. The stroke took me through one of my deep fears and here, and I'm here to report that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The stroke cleaned out some of the pockets of fear. It's happened, and here I am. 
The result is that I've grown closer to God than ever before. What more could I ask? So as you and we all spend time just sitting through it all, sitting with it all, you're deconditioning the instinct to flee. That you see that the way around suffering is through is to learn to be with things just as they are. There you are sitting and Mara can come in all of his guises and there you are sitting through it just being here with your experience. That's very, very potent conditioning that you are giving yourself. Another Dana Falls poem. Allow. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth in the choice to let go of your known way of being the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So what we're doing is practicing, really seeing that the refuge is right here in the present moment. Fear is always about the future. If you come back to this moment, generally it's workable. It's bearable. And it gives you a confidence that says, oh, I have the capacity to be here with this too. Oh, I, can, I made it through once again. And fear becomes, as I love Jack's, Jack Cornfield's description, fear becomes a kind of scout to new territory. Because anytime you're going from the known to the unknown, unless you've got a real adventurous spirit in that moment, there's probably going to be a little bit of anxiety. And so fear is like the scout that's saying, about to grow. <laughs> that's a wonderful ally. If you can remember, ah, I can take it just one moment at a time. Because what we see when we make it through each moment is that deeper than the fear, there's something stronger. There's something more powerful. There's something vaster inside of us that's able to open up to the truth. Not ignoring the fear, but honoring it and knowing that we have this capacity, whether you call it purity or honesty or the truth or love, there's something right in there that says, I can be with this too. Mm. 
There's a big price to pay if we ignore our fear. This is what they do. They train 18-year-olds to go off to war and say, ignore your tendency to be afraid and attack. That's where there's all the PTSD that we have. So I'm not saying to ignore the fear, but just to be able to honor it, process it in small doses, and say, okay, I can be with this too, a little at a time, a little at a time. Uh, Joseph has this great line, the not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. If you're willing to look at the dukkha, this is the way out of the dukkha. And Pema Chodron says, delight, take delight in that which is aware of the dukkha. There you are seeing, oh, real suffering here. Ah, there's an awareness that sees that. Take delight in that. Wow, the awareness of fear is not afraid. That which is aware of fear is not afraid. What is that that's stronger than all of the fears and the worries and the doubts that can be with things? This is quite extraordinary that we have this capacity. I was speaking to my son, um, Adam, who's 23. And he just sat a month-long retreat in Colorado with Reggie Ray, who he's kind of taken to. And uh, I said, hey, so what did you get on this retreat? He said, well, I learned about fearlessness. Reggie Ray is kind of big on fearlessness and that kind of stuff. I said, really? What did you learn about fearlessness? He said, "Uh, I learned that vulnerability is the path to fearlessness. I said, whoa, okay. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Because when we're willing to let down our armor and our protection and willing to risk opening up to what's true just a little at a time, when we're willing to do that, underneath the armor is that soft spot that's alive, that's honest, that's genuine, that's pure, that's indestructible truth, that's wisdom, that's love. then we can really take refuge in the Dharma. There's refuge in the Dharma, as as I think I said the first night, to me means every moment life is giving you what you need to wake up. When you really can surrender to that, how amazing you're given just what you need to wake up. Then you're not fighting it. And you can see the benevolence in life in that. Einstein says, perhaps the most important question we can ask ourselves is, is the universe friendly? And for me, taking refuge in the Dharma says, yes. 
there's a gift not only of life that we're given, but the possibility of waking up. And if we get beyond our confusion and our obscurations and our fears, underlying it all is peace. Underlying it all is freedom and liberation. Underlying it all is the highest happiness. So the trust and the confidence is not so much I'm so strong and I can do it, but that you can trust that the awareness can meet the moment when it comes. It always has. And so you're more and more aligning yourself with the awareness that says yes to life. This is okay too. I can trust in it. I can be with it. And then, even in the hardest moments, it's here for you if you've practiced enough. This is a, I want to honor my dear friend who was the president of the Spirit Rock Board for many years, Don Flaxman, who passed away a couple of years ago. And when he found out that he had um, incurable, uh, it was pancreatic cancer, he, um, he, shared the news with me and with a lot of people and I said, wow, how are you doing with it? And he it was this amazing conversation. I said, hold on, let me get a pen. And I was kind of like, because it was like Darshan. And he said, uh, you know, I'm now in the richest period of my life. Now that I have less time, I'm more open than I've ever been. I'm amazed at how much joy is available just by smelling a pretty flower seeing a hummingbird, or hearing a friend's voice. I don't want to waste my time complaining, he said. Expressing love and gratitude is the most important thing I can do now. This is what we're practicing, to be able to be here for anything. The lion's roar, even at the moment of, of death. Oh yeah, this too, just the next moment I can trust in life. So I'll close with a poem, last Dana Falls poem, talking about this mysterious capacity that we have, this mysterious um, what is it? I don't even know what you could call it. This mysterious gift that we're given or that comes through us that can be with anything. This is called here. Here. It's always here. The silent underpinning. The foundation beneath the foundation. When I reach deep enough into darkness, inside fear, self-doubt, aversion, or despair, there's something so intact, I almost miss it in my focus on brokenness. It's always here, this ground of being. Like the water in which fish swim, it's easy to overlook the eloquence of truth. It's here, this guiding presence, this calm, abiding stillness. 
it's here when I don't try to make life any more or less than what it is, when I stop trying to be right. It's here when I unclench my fists and breathe, when I let go of the demand to make life smooth or easy. It's here, the oneness underlying multiplicity, the exquisite isness of everything. I could shout it from the rooftops, but it's true no matter what I say, and I know you'll find it in your own time, your own way, that precious moment when you choose to meet life exactly as it is. I know you'll find it in your own time, your own way, that precious moment when you choose to meet life exactly as it is. Half hour walking, come back for sitting, chanting.